gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. If you follow me on Twitter, you probably know something's going on. Uh, I, don't worry, I'm not going to... The people who don't like dog content, I, I'll do this quickly. But uh, Zoe, our, our Carolina dog slash white trash swamp dog, woke up the other morning really lethargic and um, was moving very gingerly. And we thought it was a, uh, this happened once before where she got bit by a tick with like, I think it was Rocky Mountain spotted fever, but one of those tick-borne diseases. And so we tried to take her to the vet on an emergency basis because she seemed like she had a fever. And the, which, you know, we've spent a lot of money at Friendship Animal Hospital in Washington, D.C., um, between all the surgeries that Cosmo the Wonder Dog had, you know, he was about two surgeries shy of becoming fully bionic. Um, and uh, Zoe's bout with Parvo, not to mention a surgery or two for Pippa, I feel like we should own a have a wing named after us over at Friendship. And in all that time, you know, sometimes you'd had to wait a while, but if you came in with an emergency appointment, you had to pay extra, which is fair. Um, and you wait for the first moment that a vet can see you. Um, and they told us, uh, they told my wife, cause I couldn't go. Um, um, yeah, we're at capacity. We we're not taking any emergency visits. And then my wife went to another vet, smaller vet in our neighborhood. And, um, they said, yeah, we can't see her either, which I just find kind of amazing. Um, Again, I assume like if she had an arrowhead in her or something like that, they would have made an exception and, and, and taken her. Um, but at the same time, you know, uh, these places work like ERs and um, I just never, we never encountered anything. Like anyway, so uh, my wife got in uh, yesterday morning with an appointment, couldn't see her normal vet and the normal vet said, you know, they took blood. We'll get the results of that. But um, she thinks she hears fluid around Zoe's heart. And if she's right, then we have to act quickly. So literally, like, while I'm recording this, my wife is taking Zoe to a cardiologist in uh, a good ways away, the only place we could get in um, on short notice. And um, anyway, so that's been an occupation in been occupying a lot of headspace around here and we're acting a little gingerly around poor Zoe. So between that and some other things, I got a late start. And um, if I sound distracted, uh, it's probably in part because of that. Anyway, I, I don't mean to sound all dour and stuff. It, it, it'll, I think it's going to turn out okay. Um, you know, this vet may be wrong. Um, if she, Even if she's right, there may be things that we can do. But it's just a bummer. So, um, where to begin? Alright, well, let's just get the, the, why didn't you mention X because blah, blah, blah kind of topics out of the way. The Hunter stuff, Hunter Biden stuff is bad. It's really bad. I don't mean the plea deal per se, though, if it turns out that 
because of this, this, you know, whistleblower stuff and these other things, if it turns out that like DOJ knew there were other strings to pull that lead to this large, these larger corruption charges and opted instead to cut a de- cut a plea deal in order to put sort of the Hunter Biden issue to bed, that would be really, really bad. We don't know that yet. I mean, the amount of confidence that people have about what actually happened, people are getting way out over their skis, much like they did with the, you know, the other camp did, but the Russia collusion stuff. It's really kind of funny how so many people seem to think because Hunter said in a text message that he was sitting across from his father when he when Hunter was trying to shake down some Chinese um, business guy and he was saying, I'm sitting here, you know, it, it's not exactly, it it, I think it was just suggestive, but it was pretty obvious what he was suggesting. He was saying, I'm sitting here with my dad and my dad is listening in and he's in on this and if you uh, don't come through, we're going to make it really, really bad for you, blah, 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 blah. I don't think you can rule out the possibility that Biden was in the room when Hunter Biden was texting this. But I think it's really unlikely. <laughs> um, or at the very least, I think it's really unlikely that like Biden knew what Hunter was actually texting. Not because I think Biden is like some incredibly honorable, decent, ethical guy, but just because the text like that is so incredibly stupid. And um, the number of sort of, you know, Newsmax, OAN, uh, fever swampy people who are like, take it as a given that Hunter Biden, Hunter Biden, who in other contexts they're constantly pointing out is like a gangster, scumbag, uh, grifter, drug addict, are all of a sudden taking the position. But he must be honest in his text messages to Chinese shady characters um, at all times. He would never lie in a text message about whether or not his dad was with him. Now, again, just saying, oh, Hunter was lying, you know, Biden's defenders say, well, obviously Hunter was lying, lying. There's no evidence that his dad knew any about, anything about all of this. That is a very, 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 very minimal defense. It's true. All right. It's fair as far as it goes. It just doesn't go very, very far. I, I just like one of the worst forms of punditry is, you know, what if this was Trump or what if this was Bush? You know, that kind of thing. And it's not because it's always wrong. It's often right. It's just also so easy. But obviously, if they had uncovered a text from, you know, Don Jr. or the other one, I can't, I can never remember what Uday's name is. Um, But if they found a text from, you know, Ivanka saying pretty much exactly the same thing, I think Rachel Maddow would take over every hour of the day on MSNBC and make it into the only story in America, right? The New York Times would lose its mind. We'd get four hours of Morning Joe freaking out about it and all the rest. Now, that would probably be an overreaction too, but it would also be more legitimate than what we're hearing from uh, that same crowd when it comes to Hunter Biden. You know, I've been perfectly consistent about this for a long time, but I think Hunter Biden is a shady, scummy, broken guy. He's sort of a tragic figure. Let me put it this way. If I were a Biden, part of the Biden family, he's a tragic figure, right? Um, I, have, I, I, I have a certain amount of sympathy for families going through the problems of having 
you know, family members who are drug addicts and all that. But um, big picture, he's obviously corrupt. Now, whether his corruption extends to felonies, that has to be proven. But just as I think, you know, well, it wasn't proven that all the Trump collusion stuff, I mean, there was more, there was more Trump-Russia collusion stuff than Trump's defenders want to concede, if you actually read the Mueller report. Um, but there was far less than people like Adam Schiff and that crowd claimed there was, right? It was much grayer. It certainly wasn't the grand Manchurian candidate kind of stuff that, you know, people bet their lives on or anything like that. Um, and similarly, like, but like, I've, the point I always made was, you know, after the Trump Tower meeting, you can no longer claim that um, they wouldn't be willing to work with Russia, right? I mean, like the people who would say, how dare you suggest that Donald Trump would sell out his country and work with the foreign power, blah, 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 blah. Like, I always thought that was sort of silly to begin with. But then after the um, Trump Tower meeting, where we had it on record that basically they were looking to collude with Russia, <laughs> um, um, you know, never mind what happened later with the first impeachment, the the willingness was there. Similarly, I think you just have to work from the assumption that Hunter Biden was willing to do whatever it took to feed his habit, to make money, um, to keep the, the hookers coming. I think you can hold out the possibility that Joe Biden was smart enough and careful enough and lawyerly enough not to get deeply involved in any of this stuff. But when he says, you know, my son did nothing wrong, that's a dad move at minimum. Um, it may also be a political lie. But the idea that, you know, as Biden has said a bunch of times, that he didn't know anything about any of these things. He never asked Hunter about what he did when they went on these foreign trips together and all that kind of stuff, or foreign trip together. Yeah, I think you just, as a matter of skepticism, you know, I mean, like, you have to assume that Biden's lying about that. Um, there's just simply no reason to take his word for it um, on any of this stuff. We'll see how the media goes with it. Um, we'll see how, you know, Republicans can always overplay their hands. Um, so we'll see. But in other, what's another one of these things that's going on this week? Um, oh, the censure of Adam Schiff. I really just don't give a rat's ass. I think Adam Schiff is a bad dude. I think he lied a lot. I think he's one of these people. I, the only thing I will give him credit for is there are certain people who have certain politicians who have this amazing gift to be incredibly partisan hacks while sounding above board and reasonable. And he is one of the best out there at that. He sounds like he is speaking more in sorrow than in anger. He sounds like he has complete command of the facts, that he has inside information that is, um, that supports his claims. And he makes stuff up. He's a hack. I'm not sure this was like a hugely valuable thing for the GOP to do politically. Not sure it's worth all the time and energy put into it. Um, I'm not sure it actually hurts Adam Schiff um, because he's going to run for Senate and being censured by, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene in that crowd is not exactly a fatal blow to a California Democrats campaign for Senate, particularly in the primaries. Um, but uh, I have no sympathy for, for Schiff whatsoever. 
want to know. Oh, speaking of people I don't have sympathy for, I actually am loving the Mean Girls spat between Bobert and Margie Taylor Green. You know, not since Thomas Jefferson uh, called John Adams a super duper poopy head um, have we seen more uh, glorious statesmanship um, in American politics. No, really, I thought it was just outrageous that that Marjorie Taylor Greene told Lauren, Bo- Lauren Boebert that uh, those protein bars were good for losing weight when really they, um, they made her gain weight, um, which is a deep cut Mean Girls reference if you needed. I hate to explain that, but I just know the world that we live in now where Mean Girls seems like a really old movie to a lot of people. What else? Um, oh, so let me talk to you. Uh, let me talk about Ukraine and Russia for just two seconds. I made this point on the Dispatch podcast. I also made this point when I was subbing for Sarah on the left, right, and center uh, podcast, radio show, both. I'm not exactly sure where it appears in the universe. Um, uh, fun fact, I'm, I'm happy to be on that show these days. I've been on it a couple of times. I boycotted that show for over 10 years. They used to ask me totally different team, all that kind of stuff. So I don't feel like I'm casting shade at anybody now, but like, uh, I hated that show years ago. And part of it was because Ariana Huffington, who I've never liked, I, I have a lot of experience with Ariana Huffington. Um, uh, you know how I don't like compliments on, you know, and I always tell guests just kind of, especially Starwald, you know, AB and those people to cut it out. Um, I'm sure there are deeper psychological reasons why I don't like compliments where it's not so much that I don't like, I like hearing about them. Sometimes I like reading them. Um, but, uh, cause I'm a human being, but, um, I'm so terrified of taking them badly. Um, that when they come from friends who I think are being sincere, uh, it just makes me super uncomfortable. And, but when it comes, when they come from people who, uh, I don't think it's sincere from, it infuriates me. And, you know, in Washington, in sort of green room culture in Washington, um, there are people whose entire sort of life strategy, business strategy um, is to compliment the hell out of anybody they think they can get something out of. And, um, um, and some people do it for various mercenary reasons, like uh, Lenny Davis, for those of you who remember him, he used to be a huge spinner. Um, uh, he's now Michael Cohen's lawyer. Um, but we used to, back in the old days, uh, go on Larry King a lot against each other. And he would always do this stuff where he would compliment the hell out of me in the green room. Jonah, you're one of the only people in this whole Clinton scandal who's kept their honor and their integrity. And um, and you you don't take cheap shots. And I just think that's a, just one of the greatest signs of your character. And I, I want to congratulate you for it. And I don't think he meant 4% of it. Uh, because then when you get on the TV with him, he's like hurling insults and uh, not direct like you're an ass insults, but like he's taking these wildly asinine, deviously um, unfair, bad faith shots at anybody who disagrees with him. It was pretty clear what he was doing was just making you feel bad for correcting him, right? It was a way to sort of soften you up so that he could get away with more. There's a lot of that kind of stuff that goes on in Washington. And I, I just hate it. I feel like, I feel like it's an insult to my intelligence when, when people do that. And the oh, only reason I'm going down this rabbit hole is that 
that is my overriding was always my overriding impression of of Ariana Huffington. It's like every time I saw her, you know, oh, the most important columnist in America, the man who created blogging, all this nonsense that I just never believed for a moment. She believed, but she thought I would believe that she meant it sincerely, and that infuriated me. Anyway, so the reason I got on that rabbit hole is because Ariana Huffington, I believe, you know, started out on that left, right, and center show as a um, as the conservative, as the right, and then she sort of moved left, and and then became like the center, and then the left, and then, or at least that was my you know my recollection of this, and then I could be wrong about it, but I just remember they would always ask me to be on, and I just never wanted to be on a show with her, and then. At one point, they basically went with the model of left, right, and center, left, right, center, and Ariana Huffington, as if like she's just such a valuable asset to any conversation that even though she doesn't fit with the whole paradigm of the show, we're going to keep her around anyway. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm just, just stop asking me to come on this thing. Um, but anyway, I was on it recently. Perfectly fine show now. David Green is the host of it. I like that guy. Um, he's He's... Um, a very decent dude. Um, disagree with him on a lot of politics stuff, but I think he's a decent dude. Um, and they have they have Moa Lethe, who I love, and you know, and Sarah is usually on there. Um, so anyway, uh, I brought this up on there a couple weeks ago. Man, that was quite a digression. I apologize. The blowing up of the dam in Ukraine. Um, I think the West wildly underreacted to that. I think it's increasingly clear that Russia did it. I thought it was pretty clear at the time that Russia did it. Uh, can't be 100% sure, but even if it happened the way the Russians claim it happened, where the Ukrainians shot artillery at it, it would still, in a very, in a, in a, in a fundamental way, it would still be Russia's fault because they invaded Ukraine. They took control of that dam. They also wired the thing with explosives. We knew that a long time ago. So, they're responsible for it, whether it's an accident in a war or if it's just a straight-up accident or if, and certainly if they did it themselves. And regardless, the way the West reacted to it was they condemned it. It's a tragedy. There's a lot of passive voice stuff about how um, it was a disaster. As, and I, as I credited Noah Rothman at the time, it's not a disaster. It's an atrocity. And... The reason why I think that the West underreacted, or the reason I gave why I think the West underreacted to it, is that Russia's, Russia is always testing. It's always watching how the West responds to things to see what it can get away with. And the blowing up of that dam was a war crime um, because it was... Um, an indiscriminate way of killing civilians. Um, there's all sorts of stuff in the Geneva Conventions about this stuff. It just simply was a war crime, right? But it was a specific kind of war crime where it rendered vast swaths of the, I don't know, the ecosystem, the land, unusable, dangerous. Um, it turned, you know, over time, it turned the water into a huge disease vector in part because so much, so many livestock, so many animals, including a whole zoo, drown in this thing and then those bodies rot and you get cholera um and when the west broadly speaking treats it as if it was some sort of 
you know, almost natural disaster or lamentable byproduct of a war without putting the culpability, responsibility, and agency on Russia, Russia says, ah, so we can get away with things if we give people the psychological or rhetorical out to say it was an accident. And I, as I, again, as I said at the time, this is going to be really bad because we know Russia has been toying with the idea of doing some, of basically using the Zaporizhia uh, power plant as a, um, as a dirty bomb, right? As, as a dirty bomb and as a psychological weapon, if not uh, a weapon of mass destruction. And um, the way the West reacted, I argued, is going to give Russia a sense of permission that it can go farther and do something like that. And now we see Zelensky, look, and he could be wrong. It could be part of his, you know, public relations stuff or whatever, or based on bad intelligence. But Zelensky is now suggesting that Russia is going to, in fact, do that with the Zaporizhia power plant. And that would be, um, first of all, just a disaster. But second of all, um, it would be a foreseeable um, disaster. And I shouldn't use the word disaster, atrocity. Um, because I think we didn't draw a bright enough line about uh, the dam. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't think so. Um, maybe Russia won't do it. But if it does do it, I think it was in part because of the moral hazard of the way we responded at the time. And I guess here's another point which I, I haven't really talked about. If you recall the beginning of the war and the lead up to the war, Russia's position and the position of a lot of uh, water carriers for Putin took the position that the Ukrainians in Eastern Ukraine, if not all of Ukraine, right? I mean, that's, that's Putin's position, it's all of Ukraine. But the ones in Donetsk and Kherson and all that kind of stuff, that these Ukrainians are in fact just Russians. And Putin wrote this big sort of uh, Unabomber kind of letter explaining this point um, or explaining his version of it. He still to this day talks about, you know, uh, Russians from Ukraine or Russians who speak Ukrainian. There's a lot of this sort of, these are authentic Russians. I think it's really fascinating and we're not going to get into it now, but uh, what is so amazing to me about some of these claims about Russian identity um, are not genetic um, um, or ethnic in the sense that, you know, I am, um, wrote about this in my book. I've talked about this a few times, you know, before notions of biological racism come in in the late 19th, century, nationalism, ethnic nationalism, particularly German nationalism that you get from Johann Ficht and Herder and all these guys was um, really based in language. It was like German speaking was the test of whether or not you were a true German. And you could hear in the way they talked about German speaking, um, how it was untainted by um, romance languages and the romance, and it wasn't Latinized, right? This was their big dig at all these other mutt, garbage, mud languages that the German language was the language that was rooted in the, Amer in the, the, in the German soil to pre-Roman times. And you could see how easy it would be to take those sort of constructs and arguments and flip them into genetic biological racism arguments because they were so close to it to begin with. But anyway, the Russians aren't making biological racist arguments. They're throwing back to these linguistic arguments that basically if you're a Russian speaker, 
you're Russian. And if you, you know, you read some of their public statements and Putin speeches and, and all this kind of stuff, they talk about protecting Russian speakers in places like Estonia and Latvia and you know, Moldova and all these kinds of places. And as if all you need to be part of the Russian protectorate, you know, the, the part of the zone of Slavophile um, ownership of, of, of the Russian empire um, is to speak, be a native Russian speaker. And um, I just think it's, a, it's, it's such a interesting way of thinking about things. Yet shades of this that are much more harmless and less tied up in weird history in terms of the Spanish language sometimes. Um, but, uh, I think it's just really interesting. Anyway, I told you I wasn't going to digress and I did. I apologize. I'm doing it. Just, it, it is what it is. So, um, um, although I have to say the digressions are one of the only things that prove I didn't write out any of this beforehand. Um, that and the incredibly meandering, uh, insubstantial nature of the content to begin with. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, right. So regardless of the metaphysical genealogical arguments about what makes a Russian or doesn't make a Russian, Putin has, has asserted that all of these Russians, all these people in Ukraine are Russians, right? They are Russians, according to Putin. That, and in fact, you know, he held these referenda um, that were totally bogus and rigged um, uh, shortly after the launch of the invasion to be able to claim that these were now Russian republics. Okay. So like, I don't think the Russian republics, I don't think those referenda have any legitimacy. I don't think Putin's history of this stuff is very good. It's obviously more complicated. I've been reading this, um, I, again, listening to this Orlan, Orlando Figes, I think is the way you pronounce his last name, book, The Story of Russia. And Russia is a effed up country going way back. Uh, Pod and I got into a big text back and forth the other day. I guess he's such a fan of Russian literature and he thinks that that is a um, more of a saving grace for the greatness of Russia as a historical entity than I do. But I mean, I think Russian literature is great, all that. But um, man, it's a dysfunctional society going way back because of accidents of history and geography and all that. Regardless, again, I apologize for the diversion. Putin says these people are Russians. He made it a matter of law that these people are Russians. And now what is he doing? Well, first of all, they blew up this dam more more Ukrainians on the Russian-held side of the dam uh, were killed by this thing. Um, and even if, even if you want to sort of say, you know, assertions of Russian responsibility for the exploding of the dam should be non-admissible in this argument until later, that's fine. Um, I mean, I disagree with you, but I, I understand it. It's a, it's a legitimate thing. It could turn out that there's some other story about the dam. I honestly and sincerely uh, doubt it will, but, um, but let's just put that aside. In the places that he has pulled out of or moved troops around, they are leveling shells, you know, artillery daily at places that they say are occupied by Russians. You know, I mean, this is them killing people that they no longer claim are Ukrainians, that they claim are Russians. And all of the sort of Putin apologists, let's, you know, stop helping Ukraine people, just don't care about this, right? They don't think it's some 
it's a variable that should be entered into the equation at all. Just imagine, you know, that we took a chunk of Mexico, we declared everybody here are Americans. Um, we passed a plebiscite or whatever, declaring that this little chunk of, of Mexico is now America. And these people have, and gave everybody American passports and all the rest. And then started bombing them. I mean, again, you could have different appraisals of the perfidy of that, you know, uh, uh, the, 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 the evil or criminality of that or the, the morality of it. I mean, I, it's a weird scenario to think about, right? Um, and I don't know that I've thought it through the analogy all that much myself, but to say that it's not something worth taking notice of, it's not something worth to sort of ask yourself, well, what does this say about what Putin, what kind of, what kind of project Putin is running here, right? What kind of war is he running here? What kind of arguments is he making where he's perfectly happy to murder these people that he's just declared are all Russians. And it just, it's weird to me that it just doesn't even enter the conversation. Um, whatever you make of it, whether you're pro-Putin or anti-Putin, um, it's, it's a kind of strange. And the only explanation I can come up with is that everybody knows that Putin was always lying um, and doesn't care about any of these sort of grand things in the sense that like, yeah, he thinks Ukraine belongs to Russia, but he doesn't care about individual, actual human beings enough one way or the other, Russians or Ukrainian or otherwise, um, and that it's all just pretense and propaganda. Um, and so I think that's, that's the only good explanation for people in my camp is that it just confirms the evilness of Putin and move on. But it's amazing how it doesn't enter into the equation of, you know, Robert F. Kennedy and Glenn Greenwald and and Tucker and these people who, you know, just, just, you know, whistle zippity doodah past these inconvenient facts. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their client, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit TNUSA.com slash remnant. That's TNUSA.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could 
look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. It's just like you load the app and it says what pictures do you want in your frame and you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. So last Friday, I wrote uh, G-File that Got a, a lot of, generated a lot of buzz. Um, I basically made this argument that um, the pro-Trump right, and also just sort of the broader, let's call it MAGA right, um, so as to include more of the NatCons and post-liberal people and all that kind of stuff, but also just sort of the, the OAN and Newsmax audience crowd. Um, Regardless, let's just call it MAGA. I think people know what I mean by that. Big chunks of the right are um, basically taking the same, it's not from the same wellspring of intellectually, it's not, uh, it doesn't use the same buzzwords, but in terms of its formal structure and uh, modes of argumentation, uh, the sort of horseshoe theory of critical horseshoe theory meets critical theory these days in the form of uh, uh, critical anti-Trumpism or structural anti-Trumpism, institutional anti-Trumpism. And what I mean by that is, okay, so the the basic argument um, of critical race theorists, structural, and I understand, believe me, I understand that there are within the constructs of these various theoretical frameworks, there are important differences between some of these terms, or at least the people who believe, who who work in these fields, think there are really important differences between these terms, a point I'll get get back to in a second. But broadly speaking, the whole confluence, the whole portfolio of uh, critical race, critical gender, critical um, theory, legal theory, broadly speaking, is that the system, there's a ghost in the machine, right? That there's a, there's a systemic bias, an institutional bias, that there is this carryover of racism that cannot be um, expunged in, from any of our institutions as currently constructed. Um, and, you know, this is the argument that taken to its, its extremes, in some cases people say that, a, you know, a black man can't, um, ever get a fair trial in the United States of America because the system itself is just so biased against black men. Um, and then taken to a further extreme, 
certain, you know, for want of a better word, idiots think that a black guy that you caught dead to rights raping and murdering somebody still shouldn't be convicted because the system itself um, is designed to put black people in prison and he's just a victim of these root causes and all this kind of stuff. I want to be very clear. I'm not trying to do a nut-picking thing. I know that the vast majority of even very left-wing and liberal Democrats and, and, and believers in a lot of this critical race stuff don't make that argument. I'm just saying if you take it to extreme, that's sort of directionally where a lot of this stuff goes. This is why the sort of the Braggs and the Chesa Boudin or whatever you pronounce his name, um, how, why that crowd, you know, really tried to move away from charging gun crime felonies and these kinds of things is because they don't believe in the, um, the carceral state, right? That, that mass incarceration is, is a bigger problem than the individuals who are committing crimes and all that. It's a, it's a broad, you know, it's, it's the underlying argument behind defund the police among the people who actually believed it is that it's impossible for the police to be instruments of justice. Um, so we shouldn't have them at all. Even if that means there's more crime in certain places, that's the lesser evil compared to the institutionalized white supremacy of, of police departments, yada, 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 yada. Um, that kind of argument. And so broadly speaking, where it comes from is this, it's basically, it's, it's the logical conclusion of the assumptions that are built in at the front end. And so like the inconvenience or the uh, persecution, prosecution, or disparate outcomes or whatever of certain racial groups is proof that the system is rigged, right? It's, it's any inconvenient facts about outcomes are proof of the sinister evil of the inputs, right? Of the way the system is set up. If there are disparate test scores between different groups for S on the SAT or whatever, it's the first assumption is that's because the SAT is wrong. That's because the questions are biased. It works from the assumption that anything that paints a picture or gives a result that uh, shows inequality, inequity in any way, um, it's the system that's flawed for producing that result. Um, and it, you can go pretty deep pulling the threads on this in terms of there's a lot of like Rousseauian, uh, you know, uh, blank slateism. And again, blank slate actually comes from, I believe, Locke, but like this idea that there are no inherent differences. We're all born equally the same um, with, you know, as individuals and as groups and all that. And so therefore any uh, statistically um, unappealing distributions of benefits of any kind or of penalties of any kind is the product of institutional biases, right? That argument, that approach, that way of thinking um, mirrors the way people think about Donald Trump and the way Donald Trump thinks about himself, the way Donald Trump thinks about the world. Donald Trump thinks that if he loses a golf tournament, the golf tournament was rigged. If he loses a primary, the primary was rigged. If he, think, if he lost an election, he thinks the election was rigged. He starts from the premise that he's the winner and that he should be the winner and that he's better than everybody else and that he's smarter than everybody else. And so if there's any metric, any system, any process that leads to him looking like a loser or not looking like the best 
Um, his default position is, is that it's that system or process or institution that is to blame. And it works on a personal level too. Like Bill Barr, who carried more, you know, water for Trump than any of his other cabinet secretaries in a lot of ways. You know, he says at the end, you know, at the end of the nonsense period after the election, look, it's all BS. Uh, We've looked into every single one of these allegations and there's really just no evidence of systemic, significant fraud. The election wasn't stolen. And Trump's response isn't, well, let me see the data or did you check out this or did you look into that? It is, you must hate Trump, right? Because that is the other, you know, hating Trump is the racism, is the immediate rush to the racist explanation from the left is that if you disagree or, or sexism or homophobia or anti-trans or whatever, right? The, 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 the appeal to bigotry as the explanation for news or information or arguments you don't want to hear is uh, widespread on the left. I don't think, I don't, I don't know any liberals or leftists who disagree um, that it's widespread on the left. Um, and it's, you know, it's this sort of go-to reassuring sort of virtue signaling comfortable explanation for whenever you hear bad stuff it's like the only reason these people are bringing this up is because they're racist the only reason this would happen is because um there's racism in the system um you just don't like black people if you say this or you say that um you're just afraid of of gay people or you're you know you hate women or whatever it is just simply a way to um as hannah arendt put it a long time ago uh, dispute facts by questioning motives. And it's a very, very human thing to do. But the you must hate Trump is, you know, anti-Trumpist bigotry is just simply the same. It, it, it plays the exact same role um, for Trump defenders and for Trump himself, right? So Trump just simply thinks that if you tell him what he doesn't want to hear, it must be because you hate him. It can't be because you're right. It can't be because you have better facts on your side. And Trump takes that sort of logic to everything. He takes it to polling, right? Polling must be rigged if it doesn't show he's in the lead. Um, the, the Department of Justice must hate him. It must be a witch hunt if it does anything to inconvenience him, never mind, you know, expose him. Uh, the media must be fake if it says anything that he doesn't want to hear. Anyway, I wrote this long piece about this and I, I, I think I am right. And I haven't seen any major criticism yet that says I am not directionally right. What I guess I should talk about here to sort of carry the ball forward a little bit is that, you know, I've talked about this a lot with, with you guys and I've mentioned it, you know, I, I, I struggle with this because I really love intellectual history. I love ideas. I love arguments, but um, I am just almost every day coming to the conclusion that, um, was it Hume that, you know, reason as a slave to the passions um, was more right than wrong insofar as, I'm sorry, I'm from print. This is a complicated thing to express. When um, the right started making a huge deal about critical race theory and get CRT out of the schools and all this kind of stuff, the number of journalists and fact checkers and explainers who said, you know, did this Mott and Bailey thing 
where they said these people don't know what they're talking about. Critical race theory, critical legal theory, critical gender theory. These are incredibly obscure academic philosophical notions that are studied in universities and in seminars. And it has nothing to do with what's going on out here. And, and it's much more complicated than all of you think or all these right wingers think. Therefore, they're idiots for saying it's going on in, in schools at all. Now, I, I think those guys were wrong on a couple different fronts. Uh, one is, is that, you know, the stuff that kids get in school, it may not be pure critical race theory, but it's inspired by critical race theory. You know, Rick Hess and I talked about this for a while on, on the on the remnant, you know, when we're talking about education stuff is like, you know, the ed schools are full of this garbage. This is like a major, you know, paradigm for how to think about America, how to talk about America, um, how to talk about privilege and all this kind of stuff. And the idea that somehow it hasn't trickled down into syllabi and, and, and course structure, I just think it's just a lie. And it's a pretty provable lie. doesn't mean I go as far as Chris Rufo and those guys and all that, but like it's just it it's saturated, it's seeped into all sorts of pedagogy and and journalism in America. And you and all you need to do is be just remotely familiar with it to see it. It's also wrong because you know, you hear this still constantly that if you're against critical teaching critical race theory, you're against teaching um about the history of slavery. That argument from the left when it first started to come out, I thought it was total garbage. I think factually, it's just not true as a historical matter. You know, like everybody I know learned about slavery in high school before critical race theory was a thing. At the same time, it gets more complicated because we're now seeing examples of people on the right at the activists in the grassroots level and in certain states trying not to teach about slavery, which I think is, is abhorrent. You have to teach about slavery, right? That um, doesn't mean you have to put it slavery in the context of critical race theory. You can just put it in the context of it was really, really bad, right? And this is, like, this is, this is the, one of the worst problems is that you get a lot of, so you get a lot of sort of left-wing elites talking about how these theories are complicated and they're, um, they re require a high level of intellectual sophistication to grapple with all of these issues and concepts and all this kind of thing. And then the right sort of gets seduced by the sort of esoteric knowledge mystery of these ideas. And they think, oh, there are these new ideas. Um, and that makes them all the more sinister. And that's why we have to come up with new tactics to fight them because they have come up with new word magic and our old magic can no longer withstand these new things, you know, because now it's woke. It's not politically correctness. It's wokeness. And that wokeness is so much more scary than political correctness because it's this new ideology. And you see this with cultural Marxism. You see this, all these ideas that the right takes the left seriously about its intellectual sophistication and tries to master these concepts. And then very quickly, those concepts kind of get instantiated in the right's minds and they start thinking in those terms 
as well. This is some of these things I was talking with, with Stephanie Slade about, about like Carl Schmidt and Saul Alinsky is like by handling, you know, these ideas, they get, it, it's, it's like playing with, you know, I don't know, hormone cream without gloves on or touching the pure evil and time bandits. It gets under the skin and it starts transforming people. You look into the abyss and the abyss looks into you. And all of a sudden you start thinking in this exact same friggin' categories as the stuff that you claim to be opposed to. Um, you know, <laughs> I mean, just a really silly, I, I think people at this point know I don't take Charlie Kirk very seriously, but uh, there was this great, uh, Justin Amash uh, had this great tweet where he did the timeline of uh, Charlie Kirk on the issue of Juneteenth. And, um, you know, so Juneteenth was, a you know, it was now a federal holiday. We celebrated it on Monday, which celebrated people got the day off i didn't get the day off i don't get federal holidays off but whatever um and anyway charlie kirk when trump was president said you know uh you know, all these tweets about how we celebrate juneteenth thanks to abraham lincoln who was a republican and, and you know thank you president trump for recognizing juneteenth and juneteenth is this important thing that shows how republicans are great and blah 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 and now that we're doing Juneteenth as a federal holiday, you know, Charlie Kirk has a tweet saying, uh, this is outrageous. We shouldn't surrender to this critical race theory holiday, right? And so anyway, the right starts thinking that any talk of race is critical race theory because um, in the same way that the left erroneously thinks that talking about race, any... Uh, talking about any of our historic problems with race is critical race theory. The right believes them. And then you get into this stupid thing where if we're going to define critical race theory is about teaching about slavery and Jim Crow, well, then I'm in favor of critical race theory for F's sake. You know, like people can't keep these different intellectual concepts separated. And, um, but anyway, the reason I really think this stuff is like wrong is because it's actually not just very intellectual at all. And that gets me back to the Hume passions, you know, uh, that reason is the slave to our passions thing, is saying you must hate me when you get bad news is not a very sophisticated concept. Saying life is unfair or that they're out to get me or the system is against me or um, I have... Such bad luck, it can't be um, just luck. It's, it's that the rules are, are rigged or whatever. These are not complicated ideas. These are not complicated emotions. These are very common feelings. Um, and that's what they are, is feelings. So much of the sort of intellectual, philosophical work that people try to turn into grand, complicated frameworks and theoretical concepts, I, I increasingly think is bogus. I mean, it I just, I, I think, I think these are not like so much of the institutional racism, you know, critical race theory stuff, which at least has the benefit of being based upon a couple centuries of 
a really important and significant experience of, ins- of, of legitimately institutional racism. I mean, what is slavery and Jim Crow if not institutional legal racism, right? Um, at least these, those arguments have a lot more empirical grounding, um, a lot more uh, data to them, right? A lot more fact. They're just heavier with, they're thicker with fact um, than the anti-Trumpism stuff, which is pure psychological projection and fever swamp nonsense, right? I mean, like, even if you, I, fine, the Russia collusion thing was, was a witch hunt, fine, whatever, right? Yes, the press got out over its skis and all this kind of stuff. Trump derangement syndrome is a real thing. Fine, fine. Stipulated, granted, conceded, whatever. Like, the immediate assumption that the system is to blame, that, that the FBI is corrupt, that the law is rigged, um, that the polls are rigged, if they say, if, if, if they reach the conclusion that Trump is the bad actor, it's not a very sophisticated philosophical approach to anything. You know, you can, you can encant, you know, the name, you know, the phrase deep state all you like. The simple fact is, is that Trump's in trouble with the shallow state. He's, he's in trouble with like, not, you know, the, these sinister star chamber um, manipulators behind the scenes. Um, he just pretty flagrantly broke the law. And, and so like, a lot of people on the left will agree with me. I got a lot of nice, you know, credits from people on the left for the critical Trump theory thing. Um, but they hate the idea that I think that critical race theory isn't particularly more sophisticated, right? Um, it's, like, it's like, you know, the Ibram Kendi stuff about you can't be neutral, you can't be colorblind. You're either, you, there are only two choices. You have to be racist or anti-racist. And if you're anti-racist, that means you have to actually affirmatively support policies uh, that, that fight racism as defined and designed by people like Kendi, right? It's a way to say there are no safe harbors, right? There's no, you can't just be on the sidelines. You have to be on the game, in the, in the game. And if you're not on Kendi's side, you're a racist. I mean, like, according to his actual framework, you're a racist if you're not part of his popular front, part of his coalition. That kind of thinking, A, I think is bull****, but B, is um, not new. It's not, like, the, no one invented, like, this is not a, like, like, Kendi got all of this praise and credit for coming up with this new way of thinking about racing. This is a very old friggin' way to think about race. I mean, the Germans in World War, you know, in, in the 1930s had a very similar view about race. Um, and I know I'm not saying that Kendi is one, you know, is a Nazi wants to put people in concentration camps, but this idea of sort of like tribal, uh, uh, solidarity, um, and that if you're not with us, you're against us, this sort of Schmidtian idea, Carl Schmidt, um, German philosopher of the 1930s, um, you know, his whole spiel was, you know, politics is about rewarding your friends and punishing your enemies. And that if you're not a friend, you're an enemy and, you know, tell me who your enemy is and I'll tell you who you are. Um, that kind of thinking wasn't new in the 1930s either. That kind of thinking wasn't new in, you know, the, on the savannas of Africa, 250,000 years ago. That is like basic tribal thinking, right? That is, that is just like, 
That's state of nature thinking. And again, and I don't keep coming back to suicide of the West, but sort of my point is that, you know, that kind of thinking, we put a lot of fancy stuff on it and we say, oh, it's sophisticated and modern. But, and I really do believe this pretty passionately, pretty much every form of political theory other than liberalism is in some major respect in whole or in part reactionary. Uh, I know you heard me say this before, but look, you know, like Nazism is tribalism. It's tribalism for one race. Fascism is tribalism for one state or one nation. So is nationalism. It's tribalism for one nation. Socialism is tribalism of class. You can put all sorts of modern sounding terms and language on top of this stuff, but it's, it's, it's just basically trying to come up with modern sounding ways to rationalize ancient understandings of politics. I mean, people went to great lengths. You know, like you can go back and read tens of thousands of books, probably, certainly hundreds of thousands of pages, um, explaining all sorts of really complicated, you know, with charts and graphs and formula and, and syllogisms and all sorts of clever sounding things about why, you know, Stalin's dictatorship of the proletariat this or, or Hitler's Fuhrerprinzip that, Mussolini's conceptions of the state. Uh, you know, Mussolini is the guy who comes up with the phrase totalitarian. He didn't, again, he didn't mean it as, as, as Orwellian. He meant it as sort of holistic and everybody's in it together kind of thing. Read all these things. All they are is just sort of very highfalutin ways to rationalize monarchy or authoritarianism, right? Um, and in fact, most of the stuff that you, if you went back and you could read old English or old German or whatever about monarchy, you know, that's full of the divine right of kings and God's will, this, and, and you know, Jesus established that. That's all just what was back then the pseudoscientific verbiage of justifying one man rule. Right. And one man rule is is one of these programs that's actually in all of our heads when we're born. And there are people who go searching for what they discover it in some you know dusty corner of their head. And because they're moderns, they come up with modern language around it to justify it being something other than what it is. My favorite example, talk about this a million times on here is, you know, North Korea. North Korea is just a monarchy. It's a patrilineal inherited monarchy where they hang like Christmas tree ornaments all over the institution of the dear leader, these weird, now mostly mystical, which I think it sort of proves my point, right? It used to be Marxism that justified the dear leader, and now it is these, these sort of allegorical weird myths about, you know, how they don't poop and how they, they wrote most of the great symphonies in the world and all this sort of nonsense. But it's just basically, you know, pretextual rationalization for one-man rule. Heritable one-man rule. You know, and so anyway, just, just close the circles. I don't think I made this point explicitly. Like, every left-winger I know thinks that, like, the arguments for systemic bias against Trump are laughable nonsense. Um, but if I try to say, well, you know maybe not to the same degree because there is bigotry and racism in America and there's a legacy and all that. I'm not trying to dispute that, but like the, it should tell you something that the form 
and logic of the anti-Trump arguments mirrors the form and logic of a lot of the critical race arguments. How dare you, sir? You know, that's, that's ridiculous. This is a serious, you know, mode of academic inquiry with lots of data and blah, 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 blah. And um, I'm not saying they're entirely wrong, but they're not entirely right. And this is the thing I sort of struggle with is just I more and more think a lot of ideas that we give all of this credit to as being these serious philosophical schools where if you, if you follow them faithfully, faithfully, we can transform, you know, the, the reality around us into all sorts of different ways, um, is really just, uh, rationalizing, um, a will to power, you know, a desire to come in. And that's, that's basically my problem with Deneen and all of these post-liberal guys is, um, first of all, I just think a lot of the history and political analysis, incredibly sloppy. Adam wanted me to do just sort of a, like a go straight through my notes in, in Deneen's book, um, calling out everything I circled. And cause I mean, I, I, this, this regime change book is a mess. Um, and the argument is a mess. Um, but so what I think are the, the broader arguments from all these guys is it's all sort of fancy, uh, pretextual ways of basically just saying, we can do better, we should be in charge. And, you know, there was this, uh, apparently there was some big Orrin Cass, um, uh, uh, was it American Compass? You know, these, these new, I don't know if they call them, sells nationalist conservatives or whatever, but they're part of the post-capitalism, anti-capitalism, Hewlett-Packard Foundation uh, kind of uh, pro-industrial policy, right, right? The, the, the Rubio Workers' Party stuff. And um, uh, I got to say, you know, to his credit, uh, they talked about this on the Editor's Podcast uh, earlier this week. And, and my friend Michael Brennan Doherty held his own against Charlie, Noah Rothman, and, and um, Rich in defending some of this stuff. I'm not saying that every policy idea that they put forward is bad on the merits. In the same way that there's stuff in the Deneen book about his diagnosis of problems with America that I agree with because I'm a conservative, right? He says, uh, he's the one who says, I'm not a conservative. But like, like anybody who's of generally conservative rightist tendencies, I'm going to agree with you on some things, right? Because, you know, you're just going to, even if I'm going to disagree with you about s solutions or emphasis and all these kinds of things, but sort of the philosophical, broader theoretical approach, it just works from this assumption that these new, we've got new ideas, that we have this new insight that capitalism is bad or that liberalism is bad. And so therefore, our alternative must be right. And, um, you know, it's, it's very similar to me, like the climate change stuff. You can be right that climate change exists and is a problem. That doesn't mean I have to agree with you on your economic policies about how to fix it. I can agree with a lot of the post-liberals and nationalists about what some of the problems we have in this country and in the society are, because we have problems. You know, I'm first to admit that. Um, that doesn't mean I have to agree with your, your remedies. Um, and it certainly doesn't mean that I have to get rid of the constitutional order or turn my back on free market, you know, uh, systems. Um, and, 
but it's, it's so anyway, I just, I, I, I hate the habit of reducing things to motives rather than taking arguments at face value. It's just, I, I, I increasingly find that most of the big arguments that people are making, the big theoretical philosophical arguments are really just Trojan horses for more mundane things. And, um, um, and so I, I return to this point I make often, which is just that simply that, you know, in terms of really new ideas, revolutionary new ideas, um, the only one in the last, you know, since, let's say, since Jesus, right, um, is liberal democratic capitalism. All of the supposed alternatives to liberal democratic cop- capitalism aren't more modern, aren't more sophisticated, aren't more, um, uh, you know, aren't more evolved. Um, they're, in fact, more reactionary, more backward, um, more familiar to the old regime. I mean, let's put it this way. Let's say you could explain, you sent emissaries and time machines back to, say, I don't know, the year 1000. And you had one representative explaining what um, America looked like in the year 1900 in terms of its philosophical assumptions, the role of the law, the Constitution, property rights, individual liberty, and all that kind of stuff. And you had one emissary explaining what communism looked like in 1950. And... um, another emissary explaining what Nazism looked like in, say, 1938, um, and um, another emissary explaining what um, Sweden looked like. I don't know. When was the high watermark of Swedish socialism? Let's say 1960. I could be wrong. right? You have them go back and you have them just sort of explain in words that someone a thousand years ago could understand, right, um, in terms that they could grasp. And you have them just sort of explain what each system looked like. The one that would look the most radical, the one that would look the most different from anything they'd ever heard of would be the American one. You know, saying, oh, we all own the means of production and we all share equally. Well, that's a really freaking old idea. Um, The idea that there's one master race and that we are unified and blah, 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 blah. And we fight against all of our enemies is one, you know, blah, blah, really old idea. The idea that the individual is sovereign and captain of himself, that um, the right to pursue happiness as you see it is your own, the, the, the right to worship differently um, than everybody else. Those are the radical ideas. Liberal democratic capitalism, constitutionalism, whatever, you know, whatever labels you want to put on it, that's the new thing. It's still the new thing. All these other things, uh, which claim to be more modern and more sophisticated, are just more modern and sophisticated ways of rationalizing pre-modern thinking. And I should say, look, uh, I think that's a really new idea, but it's funny. I got a bunch of, you know, paleo, alt-right, NatCon types. I don't know what labels they prefer. Um, were trying to dunk on me for my Deneen review, um, which we can put in the show notes, because I made this point that the founding fathers were not that influenced by the second treatise of government, which is this, you know, famous thing that Locke writes. And... Um, and for Deneen and a bunch of that crowd, they kind of, it, it's, it's, it's the constant intellect, it's, it's the, 
it's, it's the perennial intellectual's fallacy or mistake. It's that intellectual take ideas so seriously that they think that anywhere they look, consequential things must have been the result of um, the work of other intellectuals. And, um, um, and so for the demean in that crowd, like Locke is like the original, Locke's second treatise is like the original sin. And, and I mean, they don't go so far as to say, but for it being written, we would never have liberalism, but they come really, really close. And the people who peddle this crap secondhand and third hand, they do say it all the time. And so anyway, some guy quoted me, quoted something from the review saying how, um, um, the founding fathers were actually not that influenced something I wrote, right? The founding fathers weren't that influenced by Locke's second treatise, but they were influenced greatly by his empiricism. Um, I stand by that. I wrote about this at considerable length. I, it was one of the, I, I've said in interviews for a long time, it's one of the biggest surprises I had while researching suicide of the West is like, I always thought, you know, in high school, you're taught life, liberty, and property was changed to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that, you know, the second treatise is this thing that feeds directly into the framework of the, 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 the constitution and the founding charters and blah, 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 blah. And I'm not saying that the second treatise had zero influence, but if, and I, I should have pulled it up, but like I, I write about this bit in the book. If you go back and look, I don't think Locke is quoted once in the Federalist Papers. He, you know, Locke writes a lot about slavery, but he's not um, invoked in any of the debates about slavery. Oscar Hanlon and Oscar Hanlon, I think of his wife, I, the Hanlons. But anyway, Oscar Hanlon wrote this paper pointing out that Locke was not a major consideration among the founders when they were drafting the Constitution and whatnot. I'm sure I talked about this before when I was working on the book. I just planned to sort of like drop in, you know, because I, I, I say a lot of nice things about Locke and the Lockean revolution and blah, 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 which I'm very clear about in the book is I'm using as a symbolic phrase. You know, you can call it the Smithian revolution if you like. You can call it the friggin' Madisonian revolution if you like. I'm just, he's a stand-in for a whole bunch of thinkers and ideas. But I, you know, I asked a friend of mine, uh, Nicole Penn, you know, at AI who, did a lot of work working with the National Archives and knows a lot about founding era intellectual thought and all this kind of stuff. And I thought it'd be a really easy ask of hers. Like, I'm just looking for, because I couldn't figure out how to search. I was convinced I was searching wrong in the thing when I was using it. Um, because I would search for lock and there's very little that would come up. So I asked her to look for it. And it turns out, like, he just wasn't a major player in those debates. Now, that's not to say, or I should say, the, the second treatise stuff is not a major player. He was talked about in the revolutionary period a lot more, in part because of preachers. Like, he was mentioned a lot in sermons. But one of the things about Locke is he had already become one of these figures where, you know, how there are all these quotes from Einstein and, and Abraham Lincoln on the internet that aren't true or aren't, aren't accurate. He was just one of these guys that, like, if you wanted to win a high school debate, you mentioned John Locke, and it doesn't matter if you're quoting him accurately or anything like that. But, you know, Thomas Jefferson said he was one of the three most important creators of modernity or some greatest thinkers in the world. And the reason for it was his, his empiricism, was, which by which I mean his arguments about the individual and how the divine right of kings was illegitimate, right? And that aristocracy and nobility were illegitimate concepts. That argument was profoundly influential on the founders. And it's something 
we should celebrate. Anyway, I could go down this rabbit hole for a long time. The point I bring it up is that it was funny to have all these people, you know, making fun of me for, for writing that about Locke. And like this one guy is like, if it didn't come from Locke, where does liberalism come from then? And this sort of gets to my point, right? Is that, look, there are a lot of really important liberal thinkers. Liberalism is a, is a approach to politics and philosophy and social organization that needs a lot of theoretical and philosophical spade work to sort of hold it up because it's unnatural, right? I mean, this is my whole thing is like, it is a liberal democratic capitalism is not a natural way to organize a society. If it were, it would have occurred a lot sooner in the evolutionary record. It is a project that requires work. This is where, like, I think Noah's a little off, a little wrong in, on the editor's podcast this week about this, is that it is why Michael Burton Nord is a little right, um, even though, you know, I'm more on Noah's camp more broadly. The liberal democratic capitalism is a product. It is a, is a project. The tent poles need to be nailed down by law and then take root to mix metaphors by custom. It takes a lot of different angles and factors to create liberal democratic capitalism as a culture, as a habit of the heart. And this is one of my big, if you read the review, this is probably my biggest problem with all of these, you know, post-liberal Catholics and, and, and even to some extent, and to a lesser extent, I should say, the nationalist guys, is there just sort of, disregard for the reality of American culture as it is, as it was, and as it will be, right? Americans have a culture. There are certain systems that are going to work better on Italians than other systems. There are certain approaches that are going to work, you know, it's like Milton Friedman's thing about how, or I'm sorry, Charles Murray's thing about how basically any bad idea will work pretty well for a while with Swedes. Because there's something about Swedish culture that is just different, right? I mean, culture matters. And liberalism, you know, so this guy asked me, or a bunch of people asked me, you know, so where does liberalism come from if it doesn't come from the second treatise? Again, as if, you know, some sort of, I don't know, Jumanji or never-ending story kind of fantasy where you open a book and the idea of liberalism flies out of the book and takes over. It's not how it works. Um, but liberalism comes, you know, first and foremost from English culture. And English culture, you know, is weird. Like, it's literally weird. It's like the English were weird. They were kind of freaky. They were major outliers of um, social development um, in Europe and in the world. And it has to do with all sorts of things. Being an island country, having a weak king, no standing armies because it's an island and a weak king. And therefore, you have these spaces between different centers of power where they actually have to negotiate at an elite level um, some sort of balance. And from that kind of process, that kind of tension, a lot of civil society grows up. And you get things like the Magna Carta, although the British don't use the the, because I, I got to tell you, the Brits need, you know, I mean, I know Lend-Lease is over and stuff, but I listen to this Telegraph podcast all the time. And I listen to the, you know, I, I'm now hyper attentive to this. The Brits need thes. We need to send them as many thes as they can take because they're, 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 it's a massive shortage of definite articles. Like, you know, they're, we have to, like, he's in hospital, right? There's no the, you know, like we have to win on battlefield. 
guys, you know, this is a prosperous country. They need to get some thes. Kind of reminds me of my, um, I mentioned this in the eulogy to my dad, you know, my dad sent me this email in the middle of the, the Balkan war saying, you know, that he's concluded that what we really got to do is get some sort of trade deal from Hawaii uh, to the Balkans because um, the Hawaiian language is in desperate need of more consonants and the Balkans need just a hell of a lot more vowels. Um, anyway, sorry, I, I, I digress. Um, but, you know, the reasons why England developed differently, it's this weird thing with the Witan and, you know, this idea of sort of a weird kind of tribal parliamentary democracy, notions of the sovereignty of the, the home that you can't, you know, this, the, the Fourth Amendment stuff goes back to like the seventh century, man's home is his castle kind of doctrine. The elimination of being able to marry your cousins was a big deal because it led to like, the, it cut off the expansion of sort of tribalism in favor of the nuclear family. Um, just a whole bunch of reasons why um, England was different. And then it prospered. And then, you know, they in Holland kind of invented this, uh, this capitalism stuff, um, largely, you know, unplanned and by accident. And um, that turned out to be successful and it got reinforced. And then, you know, a bunch of other things happened in terms of, uh, you know, political institutions and cultural institutions and, and ideas justifying and reifying and improving these facts that start on the ground, start honing liberalism even more. Over time, you get a philosophy that, you know, is still a lagging indicator of the changing facts on the ground, but it, then the philosophy helps hasten the changing, the changing facts on the ground. You read the Deneen stuff and it's like, what happened on the ground just doesn't matter, right? Or, or at the very least, what happens on the ground is always the consequence of the ideas, like as if the industrial revolution doesn't happen without, you know, John Locke. Um, the idea that, you know, capitalism doesn't happen without Adam Smith. I mean, even Adam Smith conceded that he was observing more than prescribing. And I just think it's like this, this idea that ideas are the most important thing in the world. Um, I cling to it because I, I love intellectual history and I like arguing about ideas and stuff. But the way that idea is promulgated by a lot of people, I just think is wrong. Because if Donald Trump's lizard brain can come up with critical anti-Trumpism and it work as well as a theory of the universe as critical race theory, then um, that tells you it's not that hard to come up with critical race theory. And again, I don't, I just think most of the sort of political philo philosophical ideas out there are not new because they keep recurring because they are emanations from a very human way of looking at the world and we just sort of put new language on it and say, oh, look, it's a new idea when in fact it's just new wrapping on a very old idea. Um, all right. I went long enough there. Uh, thank you for indulging me. And um, thank you for all the nice notes about, uh, about the dingo. I will let you know how all that goes. If you can become a member of the dispatch, you know, if you can subscribe, it's just, you know, it would be great. Um, it pays for this podcast. It is, um, and if you can, if you're already a subscriber and you can 
do a little proselytizing for us, that would be great. Word of mouth is really important. And yeah, look, I mean, if you can give us a nice review for this podcast or for anything else on the various places where reviews are asked for, that would be great too. You know, and if just small ask, you know, for the people who hate listening to this and all that kind of stuff, um, I don't mind your criticisms. I really don't. I make mistakes on here all the time. I, I should prepare more for the interview episodes and all this kind of stuff. I'm sure I misspeak all the time on the, on the solos. But if you could just sort of, when you send me hate email, you know, if you could just sort of like start, not start from the premise that every mistake I make was deliberate, every omission was part of some dastardly plan, and instead just sort of work from the assumption that like I'm a fairly normal dude who's trying to figure out how to do this stuff and I make mistakes. Um, or even if, and, and sometimes I, I don't make mistakes and you're wrong. And just because you disagree with me doesn't mean I made a mistake. And it certainly doesn't mean I had evil motives for it. I'm not whining. I'm just sort of trying to lay some context so that when I tell people I'm never going to talk to you again because I'm tired of these emails, they can know where I'm coming from because I just don't have the time for it. So um, with that, thank you again. And I'll talk to you next time.